I really love that connection that people have with their dogs. When you can see that just a look between the two of them, they understand what's happening. listening to the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host and resident dog mom, Erin Scott. Not only can a dog be your best friend, but I believe a dog can be a healer, a teacher, and an inspiration. I can't wait to share with you stories of how the love of a dog is changing our lives and changing the world. This is Believe in Dog. Welcome to episode 47 of the Believe in Dog podcast. I'm your host, Erin Scott, and thank you so much for being here today. I am so incredibly jumping out of my seat excited for you to meet today's guest, Lynn Cox. Lynn is best known for being a long-distance open-water swimmer. As a teenager, Lynn broke the world record time for the fastest swim through the English Channel, so she broke both the men's record and the women's record with her time. And then somebody came and broke her time. So she went back (laughs) and broke the time again and set a new world record. And I just kind of love that about her. And then she started taking on more challenges, but she is best known for being the first person to swim between the United States and the Soviet Union through the Bering Strait in 1987. And she is credited by both President Ronald Reagan and Mikhail Gorbachev for helping to ease tensions to end the Cold War. Can you believe that? It's not every day that I get to talk to someone who is credited for helping to end the Cold War. And as a child who grew up in the 1980s and hearing about the Cold War and the Soviet Union, that just really blew my mind. (laughs) But Lynn's life has also been shaped in many ways by dogs and by her love of dogs and the lessons that dogs have taught her. And I have always talked about how I believe that dogs can be healers and teachers and inspirations in our lives. And Lynn's new book, Tales of Al, the Water Rescue Dog, The Making of a Super Athlete, shares many stories of dogs as healers, as teachers, and as inspirations. When Lynn found out that there was a school in Italy that trains dogs to be canine lifeguard water rescue dogs, she immediately thought, oh my gosh, I have to go there now. (laughs) And I love that about her too. And she did. Lynn traveled to Italy and met Donatella Pasquale and the many other people who are running the Italian School of Water Rescue Dogs. And the funny thing about Al, who is Donatella's female dog, Al is not quite the dog that Donatella wants her to be. And I promised Lynn that I wouldn't give away the ending and give away any spoilers of the book. But what I will say is that if you have ever been misunderstood in life, if there's a quality about you that other people take the wrong way, but that is actually kind of your superpower, uh, you will definitely resonate with Al in this book. And the book also goes into many other side stories that I really loved because it talks so much about water safety for both people and for animals. And for instance, my husband had a bad experience as a child where I think somebody was trying to teach him to either sink or swim. And unfortunately, he sunk (laughs) and has been terrified of the water ever since. 
So I'd like to just say, if we can please stop throwing any man, woman, child, or animal into the water without their consent, that would probably be a good thing for our society. But there's many stories in the book too about dogs that love to swim and also dogs that don't love to swim. People who love to swim and people who are terrified to swim. And all of these stories of courage and of overcoming and facing your fears. And I'm so excited I got to speak about all of this with Lynn. So on our interview, Lynn is going to share with us some of her background with both dogs as well as with swimming, because I was so curious to find out how she was introduced to swimming and if that was as much of a part of her life as dogs were from an early age. And of course, Lynn shares with us about her travels in Italy, the dogs and the people that she met along the way, some of the background of the stories that are in the book, Tales of Al. And I even get to ask Lynn a couple other questions about her amazing life. I'm so excited, jumping out of my seat right now, excited for you to meet Lynn Cox. Hi, I am here today with Lynn Cox, and it is a true joy and honor to be able to speak with her. Hi, Lynn. How are you? I'm doing great, Erin. I'm so excited to talk to you. I have so much I want to talk to you about. You've had just an amazing life, and a lot of it has been touched by dogs, which of course touches my heart too. (laughs) And I always love by starting out asking about your childhood experiences with dogs. So I never actually had a dog until I was 25, and then it came and changed my whole life. Wow. So are you someone who grew up with dogs in your life? Ever since I was a little tiny child, my parents had dogs, and we started off with beagles, and they were wanderers. So we lost one of the beagles, and my folks decided that we had to wait until we were older to have a dog so we would be more responsible. So our first family dog that we had for years was a Dalmatian named Beth, and she was my best friend. (laughs) She went everywhere with me. She swam with me. She slept on my bed and protected me from monsters in the middle of the night. (laughs) She was a great dog and she loved to go out and explore. And I grew up in Manchester, New Hampshire, and we lived right across from these big woods and fields. So it was so much fun just to go wandering with her. And I think she enjoyed it just as much as I did, you know, just being able to look for frogs or birds or or whatever. That's wonderful. See, this is why I wish I had had a dog growing up. <laughs> well, you're making up for lost time now. <laughs> That's true. And so I also read a story about you, and I, I really loved your lesson about patience and persistence when you encountered oh. a German shepherd named Heidi. <laughs> and I actually, there was a German shepherd in my neighborhood that kind of chased all the kids around. And so this is what I was picturing in my mind. Could you tell us about Heidi? So my neighbors, the Smiths, had a huge German Shepherd named Heidi. And I would go to visit the Smiths because they were just really nice people. And so Mrs. Smith and I would sit together in the living room and talk. And Heidi would come in and I was told by Mrs. Smith never to touch her because she was a one family dog and she would bite me. So After three or four times of sitting in the living room, I made sure to let my finger touch Heidi when she walked by. (laughs) And then when Mrs. Smith was in the kitchen doing something and Heidi would come by a little closer and I'd sort of reach out three fingers and try to touch her because this is my challenge to basically say, I'm not 
your family, but I really want to be your friend, Heidi. So I'd say probably after three or four months of doing this, one day she came over and just put her head in my lap. And just at that time, Mrs. Smith came back into the living room and saw the dog with her with her head in my lap. And I said, you know, is it okay if I pet her? And Mrs. Smith said, absolutely. She really likes you. So that's where our friendship developed. But she, Heidi, did not like Beth. And one day she went right through the screen door and bit our dog, Aww. our Dalmatian. So we learned really quickly to keep them separate. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> yeah. But um, Heidi turned out to be a really good dog, although I still am a, very careful around big German shepherds. You know, <laughs> I have always I, been too. <laughs> I, a good friend of mine had a huge one, she said, named Baron. And she said he was the sweetest, gentlest dog. And I thought about that. And I said, yeah, I guess, you know, dogs are like people in many ways. Each one is individual. And he, each one has things that sets them off or makes them happy or is a trigger point. And so, you know, but still, because you, if I don't know a dog really well, I will always ask the owner, you know, is it okay to pet the dog or can I talk to the dog? And usually it's yes. <laughs> and so, of course, the world knows you for swimming. And I I was so um, amazed by how much you accomplished at so young of an age. And I was just curious, was swimming always a part of your life, like just for as long as you can remember? Swimming was something that was a part of my life from the very beginning because my parents wanted my older brother and my two younger sisters and me to learn to swim. They thought it was a life skill, you know, just like reading. It's as as important. So my grandparents had a camp on a lake in Maine called Snow Pond. And every summer we'd go to visit them. And my grandfather was an exceptional swimmer. He swam throughout this snow pond area, but also had swum in the Hudson River and he'd done long distances. So he had taught my mom to swim. And then she in turn, along with my dad, taught my brother and me and my two sisters to swim. And that pond was the place where we played all summer long. I mean, it was the family time. It was the fun time. It was a way that we got... We were together, but also getting exercise and burning off energy and just having fun. So, you know, that's where Beth came into the picture. We got her as a puppy and my parents started teaching her just like she taught us to swim, which was really kind and gentle and reinforcing everything that she did right. They would give her praise, but also when she started to get a little bit stronger, they were able to lighten the, the the hold that they had on her so that she started to be able to use her own strength to keep herself up. And within a few weeks or months or so, she was actually really swimming well. Yeah. So we would run off the dock and jump in the water and she'd <laughs> charge out there and jump in the water with us. Uh, but she was really protective of my mom. She really didn't like having her in the water. And so she would swim over to my mom and grab her by her arm oh, wow. <laughs> and pull her into shore. And actually my book agent, Martha has a, she'll, she'll say it's not a Dalmatian, but I think it's a German, German short haired Dalmatian mix. And her name is Frankie. And Frankie does the same thing with Martha. When oh, Martha's in her pond in upstate New York, Frankie will rush around the pond, jump in and pull her to shore. And so, <laughs> and she doesn't want to be pulled to shore. Right. So. <laughs> 
she's telling Frankie, please, you know, don't do it, don't do it. But Frankie's has that same instinct. And I don't know how many dogs are like that, if it's a Dalmatian thing or a German short hair thing or what it is, but there are dogs that are insistent, you know? Yeah, I find it so interesting. We have always had, we're like pit bull rescue people and none of our dogs have ever been water dogs at all. (laughs) And so, and I've seen other pit bulls that do dock diving or do things like this, but our dogs like well, if we go to the beach or something like they don't even want to look at the water if it touches them they go running <laughs> like it, it's very funny seeing how dogs you know have a, a wide range of reactions to the water it's amazing actually there's a uh, i see a wolfhound that an irish wolfhound that lives in the neighborhood named finn and he will only get up to his chest he will not go any further in the water than that and We've tried to coax him. We've tried to pull him a little bit. We've tried to have other dogs show him how to swim, and he just won't do it. It's like, okay. And it's funny because I was talking to somebody recently who trained water dogs in the United States, and she has Newfoundlands. And she said that she had a six-month-old who was doing incredibly well, that you could throw out a line and the dog would pull the line back to shore. And that's the beginning of teaching the dogs how to do water training, water rescue. But she also had a 10-year-old Newfoundland who just recently turned 10 years old, and she would have nothing to do with the water, except fairly recently, she just decided that she wanted to do it. So, it, I, you know, I, I have been around dogs forever, and I've always thought that certain breeds, no matter what, love the water. But it's only been recently that I found out that even Newfoundlands, there are different strains within the genetic pool that love the water. And then there's others that don't want to be near it. (laughs) Yeah. That's so fascinating. Yeah. Yeah. And when did you learn that you had a real love for water that went beyond just the casual, Oh, I'm going to jump in, you know, the pool and cool off. (laughs) Well, I think it was because, you know, growing up in New Hampshire in the wintertime, you can't, it's really cold and freezing and the only thing that you can do that feels really warm is go swimming because they heat the pool areas to like 90, 95 degrees and you feel like you're in the tropics. So to go from this icy cold winter to suddenly the tropics and swim, it felt so good as a kid to do that and sort of to to defy winter. And then my parents saw that my brother and two sisters and I had an ability to do well in swimming. So they moved us from New Hampshire to California so we could train with Don Garambro, who had been, I don't know, at that point, the two or third time U.S. Olympic coach. And so we started training in this pool, which was like a field of dreams. It was the pool that had been built for the 1968 Olympic Games. It was the Belmont Plaza pool, and it was 50 meters long and 25 yards long. And it was beautiful. So at that point, I started training once a day for two hours a day, along with my siblings and and the team. And the thing about it was that Gambrel attracted some of the best swimmers, not just from the United States, but from all around the world. So here I was in the pool in the slowest lane, one of the slowest swimmers, but I'm looking over and I'm seeing Shirley Babishoff and Gary Hall and the top gold medalist from Sweden, Gunnar Larsson. And I see what it takes to be the best. It's sort of, 
incredibly inspiring to just think that they may at one point have been as slow as I was. <laughs> but my coach realized that I had this ability to swim long distances because at the end of a workout, I was sort of just getting going and my teammates were done. So he was the one that suggested that I start doing open water swimming. And at age 14, I heard about a group of kids that were going to swim across the Catalina Channel. It's also known as the San Pedro Channel. So I'd been training for two years by that time with this coach. And I talked to him and asked if he would talk to the other coach to see if I could train to swim across the Catalina Channel with this group from Seal Beach. And they allowed me to do that. So I think it was six weeks of training in the open water. And then we went to Catalina at midnight and started our swim. Uh, it was a really tough swim because, you know, swimming at night is exciting and fun, but it's also scary because you feel things moving underneath you and you can't see the support boats really well. But you also have people on paddle boards and on kayaks that are watching. But still, you sort of get spread out. There were six of us in total that started out together and five of us finished. One of the girls wound up having to get out like, there were four of us that finished. <laughs> there were five of us that started. So it was a huge adventure. It took us 12 hours and 36 minutes. Wow. And we were exhausted. My friends at that point decided they would never swim a channel again. <laughs> but I looked at it as, okay, this was a huge goal. And the swim is about the same distance as the English Channel. So I talked to my parents and asked them if I could train for the English Channel and if they would support me on that. So they said yes. So at age 14, I started training with the goal of breaking the men's and women's world record because I had people in the pool that I'd been training with that that had been their goal. So it seemed like a natural thing to believe in that it was possible. But at that point, there hadn't been any 15-year-olds that had been swimming the English Channel. So people in England and other parts of the world didn't believe that it was possible for me to do this. And I think that, you know, I was so lucky because I had support of my family, but also the support of the team and the coach that said, you know, you're ready, you can do this. And he helped me adapt workouts from the pool to the ocean. So instead of doing like 10 100 repeats, which are 10 four laps of the pool, I do 10 one mile repeats and learned how to swim faster at the end of the workout than at the start of the workout. So this became the goal and really was lucky. I got good tides, good weather and swam the channel and at age 15 broke the world record for the men and the women. And then my time was broken, so I went back and I broke the men's record. I love and that. <laughs> it was so exciting, but it was really hard because <laughs> the first time I swam it, I swam... 30 miles. And the second time, the currents were so much stronger. So I wound up swimming 33 miles. Wow. But I swam about 20 minutes faster. So all that extra work had paid off. Yeah. Um, but, but the idea of doing the English Channel again and again, it didn't appeal to me any longer. And that's when I really started doing swims that there was a swim across Cook Strait that three men had done, completed, but there had been no woman that had made it across. So that became my goal. And after I succeeded at that, I started looking at, you know, what is out there that seems really impossible? What would be exciting to do? And how do you figure something like this out? How do you 
figure out the tides, the currents, the weather, and how do you train for these different swims? And how can you rely on local knowledge? Because people in the area where you're going to go to know more about it than you ever will. You know, it's, it's, you know, it's so, I just started on that track of, of doing things that had never been done before. Um, and it was really exciting. It, it's it's so exciting to learn about and like just to, to understand your mindset and how you break these goals down and what's inspiring to you. And, and uh, it's really just been amazing to learn about. <laughs> oh, thanks. I think that, I think that's really why I've been so interested in seeing how dogs are trained to become elite athletes. Because, you know, having trained with elite athletes and having become an high athlete, elite athlete myself, it, it was, it's something that intrigues me. It's like, how can you take somebody that's just average and help them to become the best they can possibly be? And how do they do this with dogs? And how, you know, a dog can't communicate in the same way we can. And so the owner or the trainer has to be able to read so much more and see and sense how the dog is feeling. And so I really love that connection that people have with their dogs. When you can see that just a look between the two of them, they understand what's happening, you know, or come over and, and put, you know, if your dog came over and just put her head in your lap, you know, or, or just a slight wag of the tail or a nervous wag. And you can tell there's something not right. I love that because with people you can ask them. And for the most part, they're pretty straightforward. <laughs> I want to talk to you. You have this book coming out, Tales of Al, the Water Rescue Dog, the Making of a Super Athlete. And it was so exciting to to read this. And I want you to just take me back to this video that you saw online. Like, was this just something you're scrolling on YouTube and saw? Did somebody send this to you? Like, how did this all start? It started because a friend told me about elite water rescue dogs in Italy that were trained to leap out of helicopters and off Italian Coast Guard boats into the water and to and save people. And so I heard this and I thought, how could a dog do that? I mean, how could you get a dog to leap out of a helicopter? How come the dog isn't afraid of the helicopter? And, and you know, I've jumped off boats before. And if you don't do it right, it hurts. So, you know, how is this done safely? So my curiosity was really piqued. And so I right away looked up Italian water rescue dogs. But, but the name of the school is Scola Italiana Carne Savataggio. So I looked up that group and saw a red helicopter flying over a lake and a huge black Newfoundland leaping out of the helicopter into the water. And then the owner followed and they went over and rescued somebody. And so I just thought, you know, I really have to go there to Italy. I really have to see how they do this. And you know, I want to get my questions answered. Are these dogs being forced to do this? Is there something that they do? How how do they get trained to do it? So I was trying to figure out how do I figure out how to get a hold of anyone that can put me in touch with them? I don't speak much Italian at all. I mean, other than being able to order food in Italian and to say thank you. Uh, so I remembered a friend of mine had been an, an, a pilot an Air Force pilot stationed near Rome. So I reached out to him and asked him if he knew somebody at the American embassy 
And so he reached out to the naval attache because these dogs were used by the Italian Coast Guard. I thought maybe they might know who this is and what the group is. And so the naval attache reached out to somebody within the embassy and she got back to me and said, okay, the head of the school is Ferruccio Palanga. The vice president is Donatella Pasquale. Donatella speaks pretty fluent English. Why don't you get in touch with her? Here's her email. So I wrote to her and said, you know, I'd love to come to Italy and see how you train your dogs. And almost right away, I get an answer saying, you're welcome. So it was fantastic because not only did I get to go and see the dogs and see how they were training, I was immediately brought into this community of people who dedicate their time to training the dogs, who volunteer their time with their dogs to be lifeguards, and who prevent, I don't even know how many drownings a year. But last year, I have got to look this up, but in June or July, there were 14 kids on rubber inflatable rafts off the coast of Italy that had been pulled up by a current. And there were two dogs, two Labradors and their owners who saw this happening. And they went out and pulled in all the kids and, and saved them. So this is really cool because they don't just do this along the coast in Italy and along the lakes. They also sometimes patrol in Switzerland and in Germany. Oh, wow. And they also have different sort of seminars and classes all over the place. So all over Europe. And I've heard about a few Americans that have taken their dogs to Italy to do the water training, which I've heard also is very different than the water training that's been being done here in the United States with Newfoundland. But that's become a really big thing in the United States and in Canada to do water training with your dogs. So one of my questions was about Donatella, um, are they also like trained as lifeguard, like essentially go through this kind of lifeguard training too? Yes, the owners are trained to be lifeguards as well. And then when they're on board the Italian Coast Guard boats, they're there to help watch the water. And if there's somebody out in the water that's struggling or fell off their stand-up paddleboard or whatever, they will jump in and the dog will offer the harness, the little handle on the harness for the person to hold on to. And the dog will be either instructed to swim to shore or to swim to the boat. And the owner or the instructor will come back to the boat and assist the dog getting the person to wherever the person needs to be. So it's really cool because when I was in the water for the training session, you know, I had never been with the dog that I was working with was a dog named Moss. And her name was Moss because she was a big Newfoundland dog. And she was a star. She was a star athlete. And she was often used to help train the younger students that were coming into the school or the less experienced. And so the dog students, <laughs> the dog students, the dogs, that was also so much fun because I didn't realize that dogs really help train each other and also help other dogs relax or get excited. And you'll see this, you know, when one dog starts barking, another dog will start barking. Well, on the other hand, you'll also see one dog becoming calm and that will calm the other dog. So there was one instance where I was invited to go out with a mouse or to go out into the water and raise my arms in the water like I was drowning. And then Moss was told, let go, to go out and rescue me. And then the owner followed out there. But Moss initially did a wide circle around me. And then she saw that I was okay with her. 
And then she circled in close and I was able to grab onto the handhold on the harness. The dogs have been taught to do that because culturally there are many people that do not like dogs or they're afraid of dogs. And so the dog first checks out (laughs) to see, does this person want to hold on or not? The other thing that happened that I thought was so amazing is that um, I intentionally let go of the handle on the harness and she immediately swam around me and presented it to me again. And so we got really close to shore and I did it again. And she looked at me like, come on, (laughs) don't you get it? You're supposed to hold on to the harness. And then we went ashore. So, you know, the, the, the thing is that this dog was so well-trained and so in tune, not just with her owner, but with me. And turns out that part of their training is to have different people within the group, but also people outside the group pretend they're a victim. So the dog doesn't get used to just working with one person. And also so that if the dog is having a problem doing something, maybe the other owner can help the dog figure out what to do. The other thing that I learned though, too, since while I was writing the book, that not everyone who is drowning raises their arms. So sometimes people that are, are just trying to keep their head above water are thrashing, but they're, or they're just moving their hands underwater and they're down by their sides, so they're silently drowning. So the dogs haven't been trained to look for this. They've been trained to watch somebody raising their arms. So I think that having the dogs and the owners as a second sets of eyes on the, on the waterway is a really good thing. And somebody was asking me, well, you know, you have lifeguards on beaches. Why do you need to have dogs? What's the point of that? I heard that, or I found out from this group that a Newfoundland can pull in six people at a time. Wow. And a Labrador, a Golden Retriever, German Shepherd, depending on their strength, can pull in two or three people at a time. So, and actually just having, you know, instead of just two two sets of eyes on the water, you have more than that, you know? And so one of the things I thought was really interesting about Newfoundland specifically is it seems like they have special characteristics that make them very well suited to being in the water. What did you learn about that? Newfoundlands are made to be in the cold Atlantic waters. They were made to haul in the fishing lines for fishermen into their boats or to shore. So they are incredibly strong. And they actually also were made to pull carts, carts of fish or carts of beer or whatever. (laughs) And they are incredible incredibly powerful. So one of the things that I wanted to see was how they swam. And so I, when I was with them in the water, I took a big breath and dove under the water and watched their stroke. And I watched Moss in particular because she was such a great athlete. And the Newfoundlands have a lot of webbing between their toes. So they're able to spread them out slightly and then grab more water as if their paws are paddles. They also swim sort of a adapted breaststroke. So their pools are strong all the way through and they grab water all the way through and they also kick their hind legs. So that was really helpful for them to swim, but they also have double coats. They have an inner coat that helps to repel water to keep their body warm. And then they've got the outer coat to add as insulation. So that was what also was really interesting. We were in Lake 
Lago Isiocardo in Milan area. And the water temperature in the lake must have been 80 degrees. And I was so hot. And I kept thinking, how can these dogs handle this temperature? But I was they the group explained to me that they've been used to training there and that they are able to not overheat. They slow down their pace so they, they don't overheat. In fall, they also train there when the water temperature drops a lot and the dogs can move a lot faster at that point. The other thing that was so wonderful about this is that after they would do their training sessions with the dogs, the group would gather together and eat. <laughs> and they would, they would have um, a Newfoundland gathering of people and dogs and share treats. And so it was a time where, you know, for years I swam on swim teams and traveled to different swim meets. And afterwards, often you'd go together with your teammates and eat somewhere and you would debrief. You talk about the swim that did you did well in, the one you didn't do well in, and what you hope to do in the future. And that would be the same thing, but it would be with dogs instead. And it was fun to hear about, you know, the successes some people were having and how some dogs weren't quite getting it yet and how they needed to, what they needed to do or what their friends suggested they try with their dogs to help them be, reach that next level. And soon we have to talk about Donatella and Al. <laughs> so Donatella was already very experienced. It sounded like when you met her, she had been doing this for a very long time already with other dogs. Right. Donatella Pasquale was and still is the vice president of the Italian School for Water Rescue Dogs. And she has had so much experience. She is really the dog whisperer. She had had um, a Newfoundland before I met her. She had had a Leonberger, which is another popular dog that they use for water rescue training. And she would get in between the time that I worked with her and Al, another Leonberger. So she has had her own experience raising her own dogs and waiting for that specific dog that she wanted from a specific breeder at a, in a different country even to be able to get the dog she wanted. But she's also been helping train dogs for years with water rescue. But she's also done work with Al um, now years later with search and rescue. And one of the funny things she said to me was that, I'll get back to what we were talking about, but one of the funny things she said to me about Al was that most Newfoundlands don't have a great sense of smell, but Al did. She she said that she wishes that she had trained her to become a truffle dog because, because that's such a big thing in Italy. But in the water, Al was not the best student. And Donatello felt extremely challenged by her because when I met Donatello and Al, Al was two years old. And just like I was telling you before, there was a six-month-old Newfoundland here in the United States that was understanding exactly what she needed to do. And the 10-year-old who was like, I don't want to do this. And I don't, I have no indicate, I have no inclination to do it. But finally, around the 10-year-old mark, she decided she wanted to give it a try. Each dog learns at a different time and a different rate. And some dogs get certain things faster than others. And so Donatella recognized that. And it was really fun to watch her because I've been coached by some of the best coaches in the world. I've had so much fortune to have myself in that position. But also I've coached people through the years and I've taught swimming. So I've learned that, you know, there's certain skills that you'll teach somebody or a dog and they'll get to a certain level and then they can't do it. So then you back away 
And then you try that skill again, maybe approaching it a slightly different way. And with Donatella, I saw the same thing happening because what they would work on is continued success. So if the dog could go out and get get the um, swim out to the person and swim around the person, that was great. But if the dog couldn't understand that dog was supposed to stop and you're supposed to be able to grab onto the dog and have the dog pull you sore, then they would stop at that point and back it up to have them just swimming around the person. And then some other time, try that second skill again. And I thought that was so smart because you don't want to practice failure. You don't want to practice, you know, frustration. And that's what I've seen with great coaches in the world. And so, yeah, you know, Donatella and Ferruccio, who started the school, are all about excellence and having this elite group of people doing this. They also know how to help coach them to reach these levels and also realize that some dogs are not really going to get it ever, or some dogs are going to do incredibly well. And they are able to adapt and also help the instructors and the other instructors and owners learn how to do what will help their dog achieve his or her highest level. And that was fun to witness. And yeah, so it sounds like when you met Al, she was a little all over the place. She was very exuberant. (laughs) Yes, she didn't realize how strong she was. She didn't realize that she could be calm. She was just excited about life, about being in the water, about being with other dogs. Everything was magical to her. And it just was hard to calm her down. And that was kind of frustrating. Well, it was frustrating for Donatella because she really wanted to get Al's attention. She really wanted her to focus. And Al just seemed so distracted by everything. And it was embarrassing for Donatella because here she was, the vice president of the school, who had trained all kinds of dogs. And I'd come from California to meet her, and she was showing me her dog and wanting to show how well Al performed, but Al wasn't getting it and wasn't doing it. And it was really embarrassing. But over the course of time that I spent with Donatella and Al, there were huge shifts that occurred and changes within Al and within Donatella's recognition of how Al worked in the world. And that was the magic in this whole story. You know, when you suddenly realize Things are not the way you thought they were, and something else is happening. And it may be better than you ever expected. And so you actually got to be there when Al did her test with the Coast Guard to become certified. Yes, that was that was a huge thing because they put the dog through certain drills. And in order to be able to go out and be on the Italian Coast Guard patrol boat, or in the Air Force helicopter patrolling with the Air Force, they have certain things that they have to achieve to be able to be permitted along with their owner to go with with the Coast Guard or with the Air Force. And so I was able to see what the test was and to see how Al performed. And that was a big surprise for everybody. Is it okay to to give away the t- the spoiler? <laughs> no, it's not okay. No, because I the reason I mean that's the other thing is people look at the cover of the book and they go, oh, it's a story about a dog, 
It's like, well, yeah, but there's more to it. There's, there's more, there's stories about dogs and love and courage and obstacles and challenge. And, you know, why do you read a book? Because you want to learn something more than just what you see on the cover. And so I think that the reason I told the story is to take somebody along with me on this process of discovery and great surprise and to come through this journey with something more than what they started with. And I think that that's why you write a book because you're trying to share something that's, for me, something that's beautiful and inspiring and something that tells us something more about us, ourselves, our dogs and the world. But I think that if you tell the ending, it's like, what's the point of reading the book? But there is a point in reading the book. There absolutely is. And and I actually got a little emotional. <laughs> <laughs> because you probably have had experiences like that yourself. Absolutely. I mean, I always say in the podcast year that dogs can be our greatest healers and teachers and inspirations in our lives. And, you know, I've certainly seen this in my life and, and reading this book made me think of all of those things too. Oh, that's fantastic. Well, you mentioned earlier that your husband had had a bad experience with being thrown in the water when he was a child. And so one of the things I wrote about in this book is a similar experience with a boy named Jimmy, where he is absolutely traumatized by this event. And then I'm contacted to ask help to help him learn to swim, which is really an honor, but also it's so difficult because I don't want to do anything further that's going to make him more scared. So I've had to go back and learn how to teach a traumatized child. But and and it worked. He became an incredible, incredible swimmer, water polo player, rower, all the above, fell in love with the water. But he also did this because we used his Labradors to help teach him how to swim. And that was the key, was just talking to him and slowing everything down and figuring out what was really important to him. And it was his dogs who loved to swim. So I wrote a lot about that. But I also have heard since I wrote the book about other people who have a friend has a golden retriever and her son took the golden retriever and threw the golden retriever in, in the backyard pool when the, when the, when the golden retriever was a puppy. And now he is totally afraid of the water. He won't even get near it. So I think that those things that we learn for people and dogs in terms of having them safe, having them relaxed, having them feel confident is, is cr there's crossovers. There's not one separate from the other. And I think that sense of, you know, with your husband, if he only had a great instructor who could work with him one-on-one. -on -one. And so much about swimming for humans is breathing and and being able to feel comfortable that you can breathe anytime you need to. And once you can learn how to breathe and feel comfortable, then everything else can come into play. So when I've taught, I've taught people how to do bobs just to do underwater blowing out and coming back to the service and, and relaxing. And then I've held them on their backs where supporting their shoulder, which is so uncomfortable to so many people because they get water in theirs. But if they can just go, okay, that's just going to be temporary. I'm just going to do it. They float on their backs and they feel like if I gently kick because I've got long legs and my legs kind of sink, if I can just float on my back, then maybe I can be okay. So then gradually you see them being able to float on their back, to be able to kick their legs, to, you know, you build one thing on the other. And I think that with dogs, just like with people, it is wrong to take them and throw them into the water. In fact, there are some dogs that are so heavy boned that they will just sink after a few moments in the water. And 
I also wrote a lot about safety for dogs in backyard pools right. because a lot of people will leave their doggy doors opened, at least in Southern California, and go off on an errand and come back and the dog will be at the bottom of the pool because maybe the dog was racing around the pool to chase something or slipped or fell or whatever and drowned. So I am talking about water safety for just not for children and adults, but also for dogs. Yes, absolutely. I, I, the story of the little girl who wanted to learn to swim be, to oh. help the dogs. Oh my gosh, <laughs> that was yeah. also very emotional. Well, that's that's was so much fun to write about. You know, to to be able to first of all, what do you do if a dog is on the bottom of the pool? Can you do CPR? And I I learned through this experience that yes, you can do CPR, can. and sometimes the dogs will come around and be okay. But they also could be like people that, that you need to take them to the vet to make sure they don't get pneumonia. Because if people have a near drowning or drowned, they have all that water in their lungs and then they have to have to go have, be put on antibiotics or other medications prescribed by their doctor. So I think that, you know, just knowing that, that there are certain breeds of dogs. We had, as a kid, my folks wound up getting Italian greyhounds. And they were just, you know, so lean and so long-legged that they couldn't swim well. I mean, they would fall in the backyard pool and we'd have to jump in and get them out because they started doing circles and wouldn't know where where the stairs were. Even if we had showed them repetitively the stairs are at this end of the pool, they still didn't get it. So I actually asked Donatella Pasquale about that, like, why does that happen? She said, because there's no there there. They can't see where the exit is. But if you're in a lake or in a pond, they know where shore is. They can see the shoreline and they can get there. But that doesn't happen in a pool. But, you know, again, all dogs are different. And I had a yellow lab named Cody. And I trained him to be able to jump in at one end of the pool and go right down to the other end and stay in and swim around or go get out of the steps. And again, it's really different breeds of dogs do well in water and others don't. And it's really important to, you know, make sure that they have the training, the support they need. And also that when you're gone away, that you close the doggy door or something to make sure, you know. Cody sounded like a real character. <laughs> Cody was a great dog. He was six years old when I adopted him. He had been so well trained. My neighbors had had him as their first sort of child. And then three years after they had him, they wound up having twins. And so Cody was sort of not getting the attention that he had gotten before. So at the six year mark, I, as the neighbor asked, you know, could I please walk him? Because I was walking five or six or seven miles a day. And it was really lonely to do these long walks. And so, and I saw that he was pretty much just lying on the side of the yard. So the neighbor said, sure, you can take him out for a walk. So we started doing this every day and, you know, I brushed him and he loved it and we became best friends. And I think after three or four months, the owner said, do you want him? And so I just said, absolutely. You know, so we would walk together. We'd go to a place called Seal Beach, California together. And he had these instincts about people that were incredible. There was an artist who I met who wanted to work with me and do a painting of me. And I'd never met the man before. And I wasn't sure. His name's K.A. Colorado. 
and he lived up in the Pacific Northwest. And I just wasn't sure about, you know, do I do this or don't I do this? And so I asked Cody if he wanted to go with me. <laughs> and of course he did. So we went to Seal Beach and we met um, in front of this little coffee shop. And Cody usually sat next to me the whole time. And I'd stroke him and I'd watch his reactions to whoever was with me. And at one point, he just got up and walked over and sat next to K.A. And I'm like, what is this all about? And K.A.'s eye sort of welled up and he just started petting Cody and talking to him. And I just thought, wow, Cody must really like him. Cody must really trust him to do this. So as we were talking, I found out that K.A. had lost his dog about two weeks before. And he had had his dog for something like 15 or 16 years. So Cody was going over there to comfort him and also to let me know that Ken was okay, (laughs) you know, that that they were were friends. And so after that, I mean, we stayed in touch and K.A. did his paintings and we became friends and K.A. wound up getting another dog. But Cody was really close to his heart. <laughs> oh, I love that. Yeah. I know that's funny because how you know how you have a dog, but you probably have friends that absolutely adore your dog because, and, and often you, the dog gets top billing. You know, it's like, oh, yeah, hi. <laughs> Let me pet your dog. Yeah. Yeah. Penny has a whole fan club. <laughs> yeah. It's really cool. Actually, there's a dog in this neighborhood whose name is Lois. Her last name's Lane, Lois Lane. Oh, that's And cool. so, it was so much fun because her owner let me take her out for her first swim off the beach in Long Beach area. And so we went out together and, and she just, she naturally took to the water. And so often when I'm training, I train on my own or I train with a friend, but it's so much fun to train with Lois because she'll never complain. The water's cold. She'll never, she'll never want to get out of the water. It's just like, okay, so her owner will give me a tennis ball. Tom will give me a tennis ball and I'll throw it and then we'll sprint to get it. And often she beats me to the ball, (laughs) but it, it makes, it makes working out so much more fun. You know, just, you know, walking with your dog, jogging with your dog, just being with your dog. It is, it makes life better. And so with Lois, um, I was talking to her owner about another dog that I knew named Roxy. And she was also a golden retriever. And my friend would invite me over to visit with her, but also with Roxy. And they had a backyard hot tub that they didn't heat up, but because Roxy loved to swim in the hot tub. And one day I was over visiting them and she, Roxy, was in the water blowing bubbles. And I'd never seen a dog blow bubbles before. And that's what you do when you're teaching somebody to swim at first is to blow bubbles. So she would put her face in the water, blow bubbles and paddle. And it was so smart because once a dog is able to put their head forward, their hind legs come up just like a person, if you can put your face in the water, your legs come up behind you in the water and you're able to swim more at the water surface. But if your head is up, your legs are down. And so you're pressing against all that water with your body. So I was looking at her going, I have never seen anything like this in my life. And then I heard from other people who have golden retrievers that this is something they tend to do. So you know, it's it's amazing how these genetic things carry through and these little things that you never expect happen. And there was another story that I love too. It was about pork and beans and Otis. 
These are such great names. <laughs> yes. They were really amazing dogs. They lived in Emerald Bay, Laguna Beach, and their owner, Brian, had wanted to make sure that they were well taken care of when he went on vacation. So I would go to a dog sit for them. And Otis was a huge black Newfoundland. Pork and beans were both land seers, the black and white ones. And they were all so different. But um, they knew that I was there to take care of them. And when I was there, it was absolutely incredible because I was in this fairly large house overlooking the the bay and I could wake up in the morning, take them for a walk, come back and work on my first book, Swimming to Antarctica. And then we'd go for a second walk. Um, the dogs were big and gentle and wonderful, but they also had certain dogs in the neighborhood that they did not like. And I didn't know that until we went on a different course on one walk. And I wrote a lot about that um, experience. That was not something I would ever repeat. <laughs> so as much as the book is about dogs and all these other things, I felt like the co-star of the book was food. <laughs> oh, yes. Yes. You have some like mouthwatering descriptions of this food that like you're going and enjoying throughout Italy and, and everything is also kind of built around the food and sharing the food. And I was like, I've, I haven't done a lot of traveling in my life, but Italy is definitely on the bucket list <laughs> just because the, of the food. <laughs> the food there was incredible. And because I was with this group, I was invited out to dinner. So a lot of the story occurs over this very long, wonderful dinner. And what is happening is that there are different specialties from the Milan area, from Northern Italy, that are being served to us so I can sample it. And so, you know, I'm used to, you know, lasagna or spaghetti or stuff like that or food like that. But in Northern Italy, there was a rice base, there was risotto, there were different beef and chicken and fish dishes that were so unique and special to that area. And what was so great was that most of the, well, all of the food that I had was really much farm to table. So it was fresh. So I thought when I wrote this book, I realized that a lot of swimmers are foodies because after they do their big swims, they, all they want to do is eat something if it's breakfast, lunch, or dinner, or just a snack. And I've also found out through writing this book that so many of the people that are really into dogs are also foodies. So I thought that by describing the different ingredients of the different dishes that were served to us, that that might open up something new for them to experiment, to try these different foods, to try the different recipes, and to get sort of a little gastronomical tour of Northern Italy, plus learning about the Newfoundlands and the other dogs that I wrote about, the Golden Retrievers and the Labradors. And I found German Shepherds, but also there were Italian Spanoni that I had never met before and didn't realize that they're a breed specific to Italy. And so I was able to learn more about that dog. And, and also found out later that there are 10 breeds that I can't recount to you right now, but they're all specific to Italy as well. And it made me think that, hmm, this might happen in different parts of Europe as well, that they're, because they're not AKC or, or other qualified dogs like that, there might be other dogs that we just don't know anything about, which would be fun to explore at some point maybe. Yeah. So I have one more question I have to ask you about before I let you go. And this is about your experiences in the water over the course of your life 
and encounters that you've had with animals in the water. Oh. And if there are any specifically that stand out to you. (laughs) Well, actually, there are many different encounters I've had. One was once I was swimming around the Cape of Good Hope in South Africa, and I was about 400 meters from shore, and a shark came up for me. But we had on board men who were special forces. And in the water was one guy named Doug who was holding on to a rope with a spear gun in his hand. And the shark came for me. It was a 10-foot bronze whaler. And so he shot the shark in the dorsal fin. The shark bit the spear and bent it in half and swam off. Um, And I wound up finishing the swim. And it wasn't until the end of that swim that I found out this was what what had happened. Wow. So that was, the I think, the most frightening. I did... I wrote about this in Swimming to Antarctica and also about swimming with penguins in Antarctica, which is an incredible thing. But I had an experience with a gray whale, a baby gray whale that had been lost off the coast of California. And I called him Grayson because he was the son of the gray whale. And the story actually has been now translated into 23 different languages. It's about this baby whale that found me or I found him. I'm not sure however (laughs) it works and how we stayed out in the ocean for hours trying to find his mom and how there was a community of people, lifeguards, fishermen, people on the pier who all pitched in to try to find his mom. And the story is written in a very bright, happy way, similar to, so if anyone's read Grayson, they'll see that similarity between that story and Tales of Al, the water rescue dog. Now it's. And you were so young, you know, when that happened too, I guess, again, that's just one of the things that, that really just struck me was, you know, you were a teenager when this happened and you're out in the ocean for hours and so committed to this. And, uh, you know, I, I just love like the dedication of not only you, but also your family to make all of this happen and, you know, to have taken you so seriously to help you achieve your goals, you know, because not everyone takes children seriously or, oh yeah, you want to swim the English channel? Oh, good for you, huh? And, you know, pat them on the head. But like, like I I was really just, I was really struck by, by like that kind of dedication by, by everyone. (laughs) Yeah. My parents were just amazing. They really supported all of us. I mean, my sisters wound up being on the United States water polo team. My brother swam at the national level. He also swam the English channel. So all of that really came from that stability of our parents being supportive of us, of us not pushing us because if we if they pushed us, we wouldn't have wanted to do it. So we were really, really fortunate to have that kind of support. And, you know, the thing about being 17 years old, my parents didn't say you're limited because you're a certain age. You know, it's sort of, which was so fantastic because my mom was an artist. She grew up starting art on her grandfather's lap when he was painting, you know, and, and through time she became an artist in her own right. So I think having that background of the canvas is blank and you can fill it. And then having a father who was a physician who was all about research and being methodical and seeing art and science come together before me made me realize that, you know, that there's so many possibilities in life. And I really am fortunate that my parents are supporting of me and that I've also now through life realized that when you want to live a full and rich life, it's really important to have people around you that are like-minded, that are that have things they want to do, that you can support them and they can support you. And with the story about Grayson, I mean, the reason why I stayed out there for about five hours trying to help him find his mom was that 
there had been dogs in my neighborhood as a child that had been lost. And I'd go around the neighborhood trying to help find their, their owner because back then there weren't chips and dogs. And, and I think I was always successful. You know, I just go knock on people's doors and say, hi, I live on Ray street. And, you know, do you know who this dog belongs to? So, you know, to, to lose a dog, I think would be a horrible thing. And I kept thinking if this baby whale doesn't find its mother, it's going to die because it depends on its mother to survive right now. So that whole training from being with dogs helped me with the baby whale. You know, who, how do you know? I mean, what happens in life? How you, the things you take along with you and the things you leave behind, you know? Oh my gosh, it has been so wonderful to speak with you. I'm going to have links in the show notes so that everyone can buy the book, Tales of Owl, and also about your book tour. I know you're going to be touring all around the country, it sounds like, over these next few weeks. I am. I'm going to be traveling for the next seven weeks across the country, um, back and forth and up and down. And so people can just go to www.linlynne.com coxcox.com and they can see where I'm going to be and what what bookstores or what events are going to happen and also you know they can go to the link that you'll show them to buy the book which would be fantastic yes yeah. I'm so excited for you thank you so much for your time today thank you so much Erin it was really really fun this episode is brought to you by the Hugs and Belly Rubs Dog Health Journal. One of the most stressful times for me as a dog mom has been when my dogs have been sick. I've had dogs with cancer, with allergies, with mystery illnesses that we haven't been able to get a diagnosis for yet. With the Dog Health Journal, you can schedule your dog's daily meals, medications, supplements, track their appetite, water intake, and even poops. You can record their daily activities and note any changes in their physical appearance, such as lumps and bumps, or their routine. Since our dogs can't talk, it's our job as pet parents to listen to what they're telling us through their behavior and body language. With the Dog Health Journal, you can keep all the information you need to let your veterinarian know all in one place. With the Dog Health Journal bundle, you get your daily pages, you get your vet visit pages, you get a free 23-page ebook of the 12 changes in your dog to never ignore. And you also get tons of dog mom life hacks and general tips for keeping your dog as healthy as possible. So make sure you check the link in the show notes to hugsandbellyrubs.com for the Dog Health Journal. Your dog and your vet will thank you. So how amazing is Lynn? She has lived such a spectacular and amazing life, had so many adventures and accomplishments. Like, I seriously didn't even get to ask her about half of the things that I wanted to ask her about. But we did talk all about Al and Tales of Al, the water rescue dog, the making of a super athlete. And so I will have a link in the show notes so you can buy the book right now. It seriously has something for everyone. So many lessons that don't feel like lessons. I think a point that really stood out for me was the idea about how many dogs are suited for the water versus how many dogs are not suited for the water. And that varies not only by breed, generally speaking, but also just by the dog as individuals. I think we're doing better as a society, as a collective group of humans, in recognizing that dogs are very individual and we can't assume that all dogs like the same things or that all dogs that are all the same breed like the same things, or have the same even abilities or talents or skills. 
Another point that really stood out for me is just how unique, what a special combination of qualities that it would take for a person to be so dedicated and comfortable and driven to be talented in the water, in life-saving, in lifeguarding, in water rescue, and for that same person to then have a dog and have the talent and ability and skill to train the dog that the dog is also suited for the same water rescue. Like I feel like that's quite a unicorn combination of qualities for all of these people who are going to these water rescue schools with their dogs. I'm going to have some links in the show notes for you if you want to see videos of these dogs in action. I was all over the internet looking this up to see what it looked like for myself and to see what caught Lynn's attention. And it really is spectacular to see these dogs jumping out of helicopters, uh, pulling multiple people to safety. I have so incredibly much respect for everyone involved in the training of these dogs. They genuinely do look like they want to do this, that they enjoy doing this. They love to do it. They were born to do it. I found a recent article online from 2021 that I'll put a link to in the show notes that says that there are 350 specially trained canines from the Italian School of Water Rescue Dogs that patrol approximately 30 of Italy's busiest beaches. And that an average of 20 to 30 lives are saved each year by the water rescue dogs. So I'm just fascinated by all of this. I am not particularly someone who is super comfortable in the water, especially open water like that. Um, I think I had my advanced beginner card from the Red Cross from summer camp when I was a kid. And that was about as far as I ever made it. I'm probably much more comfortable in a pool than I am in any kind of open water but I honestly couldn't even tell you at this point the last time that I was even in a pool. So it was so different and unique and exciting for me to hear these stories, to see these videos, read this book, learn the experiences of these dogs and these people who are doing this kind of work. Because again, it's so different from any of my experiences. And I love seeing all the different things that we can train dogs to do. And water rescue is definitely one that wasn't specifically on my radar before having the opportunity to read this book and and to speak with Lynn. And Lynn is on her book tour currently. She will be in Alexandria, Virginia on Thursday, June 16th at Old Town Books at 7 p.m. And she'll be in Annapolis, Maryland on Saturday, June 18th at 6 p.m. at Old Fox Books and Coffee House. And I am planning to attend that event and I'm very excited about it. So make sure you get your copy of Tales of Al. Again, I'll have a link for you right in the show notes. And I just want to mention too that Lynn has written several other books and I've actually read three of them and they are all equally as amazing. And the stories and the adventures that she has to share are worth your time, are worth the read and are not something that you're going to ever hear or see anywhere else. That is for sure. So that'll do it for this episode of the Believe in Dog podcast. Thanks for hanging out with me today. I was a guest last week on the Your Natural Dog podcast with Angela Ardolino, where I got to share about the creation of my dog health journal that you've been hearing about on this podcast too. And so if you're interested in listening to that, I'll have a link for you in the show notes. It was a huge 
honor for me to be a, a guest and be asked by Angela to, to come on her podcast. And if you are interested in all things alternative health for dogs, don't forget to check out my other podcast, The Alternative Dog Moms with Kimberly Gautier. You can always find me on Facebook at Believe in Dog Podcast. And I've been more active on Instagram lately at Believe in Dog Podcast with underscores. If this is your first time listening to the Believe in Dog podcast, thank you so much for being here. Don't forget to hit the subscribe button in your podcast app so you'll never miss an episode. And if you like today's episode, I hope you'll share with one of your dog-loving friends. Until next time, this is Erin Scott, sending you hugs and belly rubs. Dog Podcast is a production of Hugs and Belly Rubs, LLC.